Well, in the early years of our marriage, uh, my wife Ruth was part of a women's discipleship ministry in our church, and from time to time that involved uh, teams of them going to other churches sometime around the world and in helping women in those churches develop and discipleship ministries for the women there. And on a couple of occasions, she was privileged to get to go to Kenya, to Uganda, to serve in some of the churches there. And on one particular year, went with three other ladies and served for a couple of weeks in churches there. And and the missionary teams that were hosting them on one of those years in Uganda decided to bless them with a gift on their last day. And that gift was to, to, to provide a kind of a boat ride down the Nile while they were there. And so they offered this to these four ladies that, hey, on the last day you're here, we'd like you to, yeah, just provide for you a boat ride on the Nile, just something that would help just refresh you after a couple of weeks of labor. So I thought, oh, that's great. Ruth had in her mind this little... Yeah, just a big boat with a canopy over it and an umbrella in my hand and some lemonade and a chair with a cushion and maybe music playing in the background. We'll just go down the Nile, look at the sights. So they showed up on that day and walked down, and there was no boat. What there was was a raft. And rather than being handed an umbrella, she was handed a, a paddle. And rather than a glass of lemonade, it was an insurance waiver and a helmet. And rather than a cushion, it was a, a life vest. And they began to realize in talking to this Australian guide that was going to take them that what they were actually about to embark on was some of the most dangerous Class 5 rapids in the world um, outside Jinja on the Nile River. And so they began to pray. <laughs> As they're getting to the boat, one of the ladies decided to joke with the guy and say, so, you ever lost anyone? He said, I don't like to talk about that. So they all just sat down with their paddles. And began to orient them to what they're about to get into and say, now listen, when I tell you to row this way, you need to row as if your life depends on it. Because your life depends on it. (laughs) And began to explain to them some of the things they will encounter uh, down the Nile River that they would have never seen before. And as they began, Ruth said it was worse than he described. And she thought, this is it. We're going to die here. Early years of marriage, I'm about to widow my husband. There were moments where they prayed, Lord, we're not going to get out of this if you don't do something. Time after time after time. And when it was all over and they get to this part of the river where they're able to actually rest and just drift and they're looking back on what happened, they said, wow, Lord, you delivered us. And the more they begin to reflect on it, the more they begin to realize that was actually a providence of God just for us to get through it. But they didn't stop there. Even that moment, they begin to even think about and celebrate, you know what? God is a God who delivers. And if he delivered us from this, well, how much more, based on what he's promised through his word, will he deliver us from bigger rivers, greater dangers, even the wrath of God to come? And I think life is full of those kinds of moments where your faith will be tested when the Lord mercifully rescues you from momentary trials, you probably all have some. Where you're looking back and go, okay, God delivered me from abuse. God delivered me from drug addiction. God delivered me from enemies who sought to put me to death. God delivered me from. In all of those kinds of moments where we see God in it and bring us through it, we're meant to realize, okay, He is our deliverer. And someday he will deliver us from every peril, from all of our enemies, from all of our sin, most importantly from his wrath.
And the Bible delivers these kinds of truths repeatedly. And Daniel 3 is one of those places. Through this story of these three men sentenced to being burned to death for refusing to bow to an idol, the Lord will reveal that he does stand with his people. He does care for his people in their trials, and he can deliver them. And thereby proving that he alone can deliver from the fires of judgment to come. So the main point for this morning, when facing trials of this life, let us entrust ourselves to God through Jesus Christ, who walks with us and delivers us from the wrath to come. When facing trials of this life, let us entrust ourselves to God through Jesus Christ, who walks with us and delivers us from the wrath to come. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, we see that in the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, according to these verses, the Lord gave Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And they begin to lead exiles from Jerusalem to Babylon. And among them are Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah in verse 6. And the Babylonians then changed their names to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Names that rather than giving honor to Israel's God, will give honor to their gods. Rather than showing, okay, submission to the God Yahweh is going to be, okay, they're now in our possession. And they're teenagers at the time. Refugees and aliens in a foreign land. And then in chapter 2, through his providence and power through Daniel, in giving an interpretation to one of, to one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, they're going to be given positions of authority and power in Babylon. And so they're going to go from slaves to rulers almost overnight. And we can think in reading chapter 2, okay, they're finally getting their turn of good circumstances. They've been stolen away from their homeland. They're grieving family and friends who have died. They're living as slaves in a foreign land. They're obeying God in every way. And now God has rewarded their faithfulness with positions of leadership and power and and safety. King Nebuchadnezzar seems to have warmed up to God in chapter 2 and even warms up to these men. And overnight, they're going to go from slaves to rulers, and and so the thought is, okay, surely now they can just kind of coast home. Well, verse 1, chapter 3, we see God has something else in mind. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits, so twice the height of this ceiling and about a little less than the width of this stage. That's this, this image, this idol. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So at the end of chapter 2, the king had received the interpretation of this dream from Daniel, 
and then said this about Daniel's God. Nebuchadnezzar said, God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. That's what he said in chapter 2. What we see here in chapter 3 is whatever that verbal profession was, it did not translate to a change of heart or a transformed life. That his heart has not been brought to any genuine faith and repentance. Perhaps he sees God as a decent God, but not the only God. He may see God as a great God, but not the jealous God, not the Holy One of Israel who alone deserves worth it. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar does not know God, not personally. Otherwise, he wouldn't have built a 90-foot-tall idol and then called all his leaders to worship it, which is what he does next, verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. They've already thought this through. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, and all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so though, though God, we see in Scripture, is trying to draw together people from every tribe and tongue to worship Him in spirit and truth, we see that Nebuchadnezzar has a different plan to gather all the tribes, all the tongues, all the nations together to worship his idol, to worship his image. And he orders everyone to bow. And that's really all it takes for us is just one new law, one new policy, one new prescribed punishment for civil disobedience, and the people of God face death. You can just ask Christians in China, ask Christians in Pakistan, ask Christians in Venezuela, ask Christians throughout the world and throughout all time how quickly you can go from safe to on the brink of execution. Even ask Christians in this country who have even now for not bowing to the God of same-sex marriage, the God of gender fluidity, the God of white supremacy, the God of wealth, the God of fill-in-the-blank whose homes and jobs and reputations and money is taken away. We're so near to it. So while we should rejoice in current freedoms to worship Jesus Christ, we cannot put our hope in freedoms. They can be taken away. They will be at some point taken away. And so in no time, there's this new law in the land, fall down and worship. And so just a moment to pause and think, what it means as Christians is we really need to know the Word of God. We really need to know what is it that God says is idolatry. Otherwise, how will we know in the moment when called upon to bow down to whatever it is that it's even wrong? How will we guard ourselves from just being blown to and fro in the winds of social changes? And as so-called professing Christians 
simply call us to bow to those same winds, how are we going to know? Apart from the revealed word of God who says, this is who I am, this is what I require, this is what obedience is, this is what it means to worship me. So that when the moment comes that the music sounds and we're called to give honor and adoration to this thing, we know, okay, that thing is wrong. Because if we're not convinced, we're certainly not going to risk our lives for it. So everyone's going to bow and worship except three men. Verse 8, therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. I'm going to flatter him before they accuse You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. May the world say the same of us someday. (laughs) May the world notice the difference. That wow, these these people just don't serve our gods. And they don't worship the golden images that we set up. And no matter how discreetly we might try to express our faithfulness to Christ, I think the Lord will allow Satan to stir up what he calls malicious opponents who call attention to our faith, who accuse us of wrongdoing, and then will use laws and legalities to wage spiritual war. Just criminalize Christianity. Criminalize faith in this God. And then laws and and swords can be used to wage spiritual war. But notice how these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, openly refuse to bow. In other words, they don't pretend to tie their shoes, you know, when the the music starts playing. They don't duck behind a shed. So they go unnoticed. They openly stand in devotion to the Lord their God and accept the cost. There's nowhere to hide. Even though they're the only ones that are actually serving Babylon truly, This is what the Babylonians wouldn't have understood, that why wouldn't God incinerate everybody on the plane in that moment? Well, because his people are there. And he'll spare everyone for the sake of three. He'll spare who's ever present for the sake of his elect. But nobody else is going to see that. The hand of judgment that is stayed by the presence of God's people. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Just to be clear, I want to hear it from your mouth. Now if you're ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I've made well and good. So he's wanting to make it just to make sure you may not have heard me. Let me give you another chance to go through all the instructions. But if you don't worship, 
You shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Underline those words. Circle them. (laughs) Highlight them. That is the question of the whole chapter. It may look as though Nebuchadnezzar is calling the shots, but no, what we see is God is moving all these pieces around the table to bring the whole story to that question. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Because as far as Nebuchadnezzar is concerned, his hands are the greatest ones there. That there are none greater than his own, and so he demands their fear, their honor. Who is the God who can deliver you from me? And I would even argue that that is the question that every created power in the universe tries to throw in your face. It's the question Satan even whispers in every ear, you're mine. Who can deliver you from me? It's the question of every addiction, every eating disorder, every enslaving sin, every physical affliction jeers this at us. Who's the God that can deliver you from me? And even in a, though in a righteous way, I think it's the question that every sentence of God's holy law presses onto our minds. Where the law cries out, you are a lawbreaker. You are a sinner trapped under me. You cannot get out. You cannot keep me perfectly. You will never be free. Who can deliver you from the hands of the law? Even the grave calls out, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? All are going to go to the grave. The grave will never be full. And even the grave cries out, who is the God who's going to deliver you from me? So just ask yourself, what ensnares you? Where do you feel ensnared? From what do you feel now? I need deliverance. I don't need tips. I don't need a boost. (laughs) I don't need just seven pointers to get out. I need someone to rescue me. It's one of the most serious questions we'll ever hear. You don't want to avoid it. Who's going to deliver you? For these men, the king asked, who's going to deliver from my hands in this furnace? So it's the threat of persecution and death for their faith. For you and me, it could be any number of things. Who will deliver you from abuse? Who will deliver you from cancer? Who will deliver you from the hardships of this life? Who will deliver you from the sins that entangle you? The Apostle Paul bemoaned, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? (laughs) He felt it. Who will deliver you from death? Even more importantly, who will deliver us from the wrath to come on the other side of death? Deliverance is our great need, which is why the question is so important, who is the God that will deliver you? Who do you trust in? Who are you banking on in the end? Well, these three men, by God's grace, have a very firm answer. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, 
and he will deliver you or deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice how they don't curse the king for his proud, idolatrous order. They don't tell him that he will die and burn in hell forever if he does it. They don't mock his stupidity. They don't cower and beg for their lives. They don't ask for another chance. No, they realize this is primarily about God, not us. This is primarily about God's glory, not our reputation. This is primarily about our lives entrusted to his hands, not us just getting out of danger. It's about trusting him to care for us. They realize this is about making him known and then us courageously accepting those consequences, the cost of following him. This is accepting that the Lord's love for them does not mean he'll keep them out of a furnace. It just means he'll preserve them through it. So who is the God? Verse 17, our God. Not a distant God, our God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's who can deliver us. The God who redeemed Israel from Egypt. The God who created the universe. Who created fire. Who raises up kings and puts them down. Who knows the end from the beginning. Who had their days numbered before there were any. Who has the hair of their heads numbered. who loves us with a steadfast love, who promises to be with us. They say, that's our God, whom we serve. So we won't bow down to your fake idol and forsake the one true God who's not nameless and distant, but has clearly revealed himself through his word. It was not many years before this that God spoke to Jeremiah in this way. Says to Jeremiah, if you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. These men know, okay, the promise he made to Jeremiah is the promise he makes to us. So these men knew and trusted that God. They say he's able. He will deliver us because that's who he is. So he's always been a redeeming God, a saving God, a rescuing God. They know the power of the king really is irrelevant. The testimony of malicious accusers doesn't matter. Even the heat of the furnace, as we'll see, doesn't really amount to anything. Verse 18, but if not, which simply means if the Lord chooses not to deliver us from this fire, he will through the fire still deliver us from your hands. And so we still won't bow down to your idol. (laughs) Because often the Lord delivers his people from death, but then often the Lord delivers his people through death. And by death. You know, in Acts chapter 12, Peter is going to be delivered from execution by the Romans, only to be executed years later by the Romans. Time and time again, Paul was delivered from death 
But then according to the preordained plan of God, when the right day came that God had designed, he would be executed in Rome. And it's Paul who said, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's going to die in the city he wrote that letter to. And it's still true. God delivered him. Even death didn't separate him. Death just delivered him to God. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we pray with open hands, not closed fists. We pray for healing from cancer. But always willing to accept that cancer may be the means that God chose to bring us to him. We pray to be delivered from persecution, but fully believing that someday persecution may be the means God uses to deliver us from all persecution and bring us into his glory. And so we entrust ourselves to him who loves us, who cares for us, who always delivers us at the proper time and in the proper way. So in a temporary sense, we often lose In the moment, it often seems like evil wins. And we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to accept that? How are you with losing? How are you with others mocking you and you having no reply? How are we with even going to the grave with our reputations decimated? Do we realize as Jesus is crucified and put in the grave, almost everyone thinks he deserved it. Almost everyone believes this is his due. And many of us are not accustomed to public accusation, to personal threats, to being reviled as Christians, to being dragged into court, to losing homes and money and jobs and everything. And so these are the kinds of passages that actually help us prepare, that help us know how to pray for the Lord to help us prepare. Because in verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. He ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their out other garments. They were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Notice how often it says burning, fiery furnace? <laughs> burning, fiery furnace. I think when we see that kind of repetition in the Word of God, we're meant to go, what? why does he keep saying this? I think to make the point, this is not a, a little fire around a campsite. This would have been a massive smelter's furnace that they would have used to even build the idol. This is how they would have melted the metal. This is how they would have dealt with the materials to actually make this. That's the furnace they're going to use to kill them. Is the furnace they use to make their idol. Seven times overheated. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, 
the flame of fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. So the other thing God repeats time and time again is their names. Do you notice that? He doesn't just say them, these guys, these fellows, these people. Always says their names. God knows their names. And he doesn't want us to forget their names. (laughs) That sometimes faith in God means defiance of man. They're totally respectful, you notice, but completely unwilling to yield. Because honoring the heavenly king means disobeying this one. And when they do, Nebuchadnezzar, it says, is filled with fury, blinded by his pride. He just becomes rash and foolish. Heat the furnace seven times. You notice that even getting near the overheated furnace kills the soldiers. Notice what he calls them in verse 20, the mighty men of his army. The mighty men of his army bind these young guys and they die before they get to the mouth of the furnace. They're struck down. But then as we'll see that no human king can heat any furnace to the point of consuming those God decides to preserve. And so in verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? He answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The text doesn't give the identity of this fourth figure. Some suppose an angel, but others the son of God showing himself before his incarnation. The son of God appearing like a man, like a son of God, a figure. The book of Daniel gives, I think, a hint of this in chapter 6, verse 26, when in describing God, probably God the Son, it says he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall shall be no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. So this could be that God who delivers and rescues standing with these three men and walking with them in the fire to deliver them. Text doesn't say it exactly, but I think the point is clear. The Lord is with them. The Lord is for them. He does not leave them alone. I think this is important. That God delivers us firstly by being with us. David in Psalm 23 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. The Lord says to Isaiah, Fear not, for I'm with you. Even Jesus Christ is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus himself says to us, I will never leave you or forsake you so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? And that's what we're meant to see as this fourth figure is there with them in the furnace. The bonds are loosed. The enemies of God are scorched outside the door. 
And here God is walking with his people, caring for his people, preserving them in the midst of the fire. The Lord is our helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, he can throw you into a furnace. He can beat you and kill you. But yet God says, don't fear. Even that, because I'm with you. Verse 26, And Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and I wonder if they have to step over the corpses as they come out and what a sight that would have been. These bodies of these mighty men burned on the ground as they come out. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. So Nebuchadnezzar gathers all these leaders for one thing. God's going to gather them for another. And the hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire came upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. It's convicting when a pagan king who hates God is actually giving you the job description of a Christian. That here's what it means to follow God, to be his servant, to testify to him, to trust him, to yield up their bodies before they renounce him. It says, therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there's no other God who's able to rescue in this way. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So entrusting themselves to the Lord, they set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies to death, and the Lord justified them in the sight of the watching world. He declared them righteous, meaning declared their faith to be in the right. What all of you are trusting in is wrong. What they are trusting in is right. They are trusting in me. And so God justifies them, vindicates them, proves their faith to be in the right place. Even Nebuchadnezzar pronounces, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Again, underline those words. Circle those words. Highlight those words. Who is the God who is able to deliver you from my hands? Well, the God of the Bible the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, here's the question for us. Should this earthly, temporary deliverance be enough for us? Is the point God keeping you from dying? For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is this all they're meant to see? Is we can just keep living life and just God will keep us from the grave? Are we meant to read it and go, okay, great, that's what the gospel's about, just keeping us from burning up on earth? I think Scripture would say, well, well, no. 
there are far worse things than physical death. Their story is a foreshadowing, a mere taste of things to come. Because there is a fire that burns hotter than any man can make it, and longer than any furnace will keep it. And that is the fire of God's wrath. And it's reserved for every sinner whose sins are not forgiven in Jesus Christ. It's reserved for every sinner who's not, whose hope is not in this Savior. It's reserved for every person who rather than bow to this God and trust in this God, worships idols. We read of it in Revelation 20, where it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, meaning even the first death is thrown into the second death. It says this is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, meaning the listing of those whose faith and hope is in Jesus Christ, the listing of those who by God's grace have turned from their sin and repentance and trusted in the one who was crucified in their place and trusted in the one who was raised from the grave, anyone whose name is not attached to that person says he was thrown into the lake of fire. What it means is ultimately we don't need deliverance from that first death, but from the second one. That one burns forever. And so we need the God who delivered Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego from Nebuchadnezzar's furnace to also deliver us from his furnace, to deliver from that fire. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that announces that deliverance, that the Father sent the Son to walk in the fire we deserve. That when Jesus is hanging on Calvary, he is absorbing the wrath of God for all those whose faith is in him. He's drinking the cup of his wrath. He's absorbing all the fire of judgment that is deserved for us. And when he's raised on the third day, he's proving, okay, the Father has accepted his sacrifice. The Father has called him out of that fire and he is unblemished because he is a lamb without blemish. He is untouched because he's passed through death for us. According to Hebrews 2.9, we see him, meaning Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So the only way to be spared, the wrath to come, is for Jesus to satisfy it in your place. For him to walk in that fire for you, and since he is without sin, death can't hold him. And if we are in him, then death can't hold us. That's how we walk out of the fire, is attached to this one. This story points to him. And so in light of this, what should we do? So I have seven points of application for us. In light of this, Daniel 3, what should we do? Well, firstly, fear God, not man. Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, this is Jesus speaking, do not fear those who kill the body, 
and after that have nothing more they can do to you. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they saw that. We're not going to fear you, Nebuchadnezzar, who can just kill our bodies. We fear the one who, after the body's killed, can do worse. So we're not just going to fear him, be scared of him. We're going to fear in a way that draws us near him to trust him and worship him, to revere him. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Christ, well then to fear God means application number two, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. For he alone, according to 1 Thessalonians 1.10, delivers us from the wrath to come. So fear God, not man. But number two, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus who alone can deliver you from the wrath to come. That means you acknowledge to God, I'm an idol worshiper. (laughs) I love me more than anything. I love my sin. And it's worthy of punishment, worthy of death, for the wages of sin is death. And I realize that the only way that I can be forgiven is by Christ's blood being shed for me, his body being broken for me. And so I turn from my sin and look to this one who was crucified, and my faith and hope is in him. My faith and hope is that when Someday when I go into the ground, I will be raised as he was raised. So it means turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Number three, love God and his kingdom, not the things of the world. Second Peter 3, verses 10 through 13, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter is well aware of what's coming. Peter is saying there's another fire coming that the earth will dissolve in. And in light of that, he says, what kind of people ought we to be? Should we love the world? Should we continue in unholiness, continue in unrighteousness, or should this sober us so that we beg God all the more to help him love us, help us love him with all of our hearts? Follow him with all of our energy. We love God, not the world. Fourthly, do not count your life too dear. We should not count our lives too dear. Paul says to the elders of Ephesus, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. In other words, he's bound. The actual word is bound by the Spirit. He's tied up. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I'm bound in the Spirit to go into the furnace. And then he says, But I don't account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I'm bound up in the Spirit, headed for the furnace, 
but I don't care. Why not? I just don't hold my life that dear. Really, why not? What do you hold dear? That I would finish my ministry of proclaiming Christ, preaching Christ, making him known. Number five, do not be surprised by persecution, but rejoice. First Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Don't be surprised when fiery trials come on us, but rather rejoice because that's the opportunity to share in the sufferings of Christ, to have our faith purified to deeper love for Christ, to burn away the dross and entanglements of this world, to prepare us all the more for Christ's coming so that when he actually comes, we will be glad. Number six, in days of trouble... Cry out to God in prayer and worship. Psalm 50 says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So what he doesn't want is in the days of trouble to go, okay, I'm a Christian, I'm okay, I've got this, here I go. He doesn't want us just to get calloused or hard or just sort of stoic and bear with it. No, he wants us to cry out to him in a day of trouble, to cry out to him to prayer in our troubles. He says, I'll deliver you and you'll glorify me. And then finally, number seven, set your hope on God. 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul writes, For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So the one who delivered Paul time and time again is the one who ultimately delivered him on the last day. The one who delivered Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego on the plains of Dura is the one who will deliver them in his own throne room. The one who delivered my wife from the Nile River is the one who will deliver her on the last day. That time and time again we get these tastes of deliverance. Time and time again in the Word, we witness these moments of deliverance and all of it to convince us that God in Christ is our deliverer, that God in Christ is the one who will see us through the fire, that God in Christ is the one who will receive us on the other side. The fires of hell will not even singe our hair, just to think of it. Not only does he have our hairs numbered, he has our hairs protected. They will not be singed. The garments we wear will not bear a single mark of sin. Not even the smell of death will be on us. 
only the aroma of Christ. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There is no other God who's able to rescue in this way. So we learn, let us entrust ourselves to him who walks with us now and who will deliver us then. Let's pray. Father, we, though do not see you, we love you. Though we do not see you now, we wait for you because we know you're with us. We don't see you, but we see you. We don't hear you, but we hear you through your word. We witness your works in Daniel 3. And we say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, our God will deliver us. Because there's no God who can rescue the way you do. You have supplied for us so great a redeemer in Jesus Christ. And we pray that our faith would be deeply rooted in him. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Help us to hold fast to the end. In your name we pray. Amen.